This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. For the sake of the recording, let's just do a quick... um, This is Sunday morning, the 30th of December, 2012. The speaker is Dave Fiedler. The title of the presentation is The Path to Victory, and this is the uh, 945 meeting, give or take. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we ask your blessing today. We pray that you'll be with us. We want to understand. We want to understand enough that we can participate more intelligently in your work. So we pray that you'll be with us and direct our thoughts and our our considerations today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, the path to victory, and I put a subtitle on it, Making Sense of the Process. Um, you know, there are times and places where the Lord says, just trust me. It's called faith. And we need that. We need to be able to operate by faith. But there are also times and places where God says, you know, I really, I really wish you would care enough to understand. <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and I think that's my motivation here. I, I want to understand what there is to understand. There are things that are beyond us, beyond me, at least. Maybe you can figure out things that I can't. Praise the Lord. You know, come tell me someday. Um, but in the meantime, you know, let's try to understand as best we can. And, and this is my effort to make sense out of the plan of salvation. Does it make sense? Or is it just some sort of a weird thing? Okay. Well, almost all of you were here when we looked at this just a moment ago, so we won't spend a lot of time on this, but this is what we talked about yesterday, is the the four-step process. Now, Ellen White describes this under the the heading of Satan falling like lightning from heaven, okay? And probably the summation statement that was used yesterday comes from Desire of Ages, where when the 70 disciples came back from their missionary tour, they said, Lord, even the the demons, devils, even the devils are subject to us in your name. And Jesus' first comment was, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Kind of a strange comment. But Ellen White goes ahead and she expands that. She says, scenes of the past and the future were open to the mind of Christ. And he saw these four different episodes. And you'll find that right there in Desire of Ages. Okay? He saw, first of all, when Satan was originally kicked out of heaven 6,000 years ago, give or take, just shortly before the creation of earth. Okay? He looked forward a couple of weeks at that point to his own death on the cross. He looked forward to the 144,000 and the, the triumph of God's people in the end of time. And then he looked all the way down to the final eradication of sin. And this is the, the four-step. She doesn't use this exact phrase here, a four-step phrase. But, but this is the fall of Satan like lightning from heaven. Okay? Um, so... The point to remember here, the the key points we're building on are that, number one, it's not a gradual process. It happens bam, 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 okay? We're waiting on number three. (laughs) So I put hopefully, okay? Um, You know, there's probably uh, a few of you who are older than I am, and most of you are probably younger than I am, you know? There comes a point in life where you start saying, I wonder if it'll happen, you know, what? You know, I've got, you know, 30, maybe 40 years left. Will it happen? My lifetime? I don't know. I don't care. But I want to make very sure that if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, when I lay down for the last time, 
I will have done something that at least kicked the can down the road and moved the process along, okay? <laughs> that's, that's my goal. I mean, I can be a little cog in the big wheel. That's, that's fine. I don't have to be, you know, I don't, I don't have to be present at the end. I'd love to, you know, but I have to do something to make it happen. That's, that's my, my goal in life. Okay, so we've looked at that. Let's, um, oh, and the other thought, and I mentioned this already, was that it happens in, in steps and, ju- and chunks and pieces like that, and it requires demonstration. Every step of the way is a, is a demonstration. Of course, number one didn't require demonstration because you're dealing with three individuals who are omniscient. <laughs> they knew everything, okay? So that wasn't quite the same. But, but here was demonstration. This will be demonstration. This will be demonstration. God cannot pronounce his way out of this problem. He has to demonstrate. Okay, so... Start off with some basic points. This is a familiar verse, I trust. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. And so here's, here's my question. You're used to that verse. You've heard that verse. And you are familiar with and you're used to that sequence. The gospel goes to the world and then the end comes. But why? Why does the gospel have to go to all the world? Because it's what it said. But does God just say things for the fun of it? Or does he have a reason? You know? It's kind of like looking, you, you lift the lid on the, uh, lift the hood on your car, and you look in, and somebody points at something and says, what's that there for? Well, it's just because it's there. But would the whole thing work if we took it out? <laughs> that's, that's, you know, is there a reason for the stuff that we see when we look under the hood? You know? Now, there are a few of those little Vacuum valves or vacuum tubes, you wonder about, you know, you pull them off and it doesn't do anything. <laughs> but you can't tell it does anything. But, you know, if you pull a carburetor out, you know, or the fuel injector out, yeah, you know, it doesn't run so well. So here's my question. Is there a reason that the, the gospel goes to all the world before the end? Here's a hint, and I don't mean to be rude in saying this. In case you're thinking this, don't be, you know, don't be offended. It's not so everybody has a chance to be saved. That's not the reason. How many billions of people have already died without ever hearing the gospel? And some of them are going to be saved. The Bible tells us that. Spirit of prophecy tells us that. You know? Um, Zechariah, Paul in Romans talks about the Gentiles who are a law unto themselves, you know? Uh, and they do by nature the, the things that, 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 that the Spirit asks. Okay. Some of them will be saved. They won't have a clue. They're the ones that, you know, they come to Jesus and say, I, I don't really understand the whole thing with the holes in the hands. Could you explain that to me? I, I, don't, I don't even know how I got here. <laughs> you know? I don't know where I'm at. I don't know who you are, and I don't know why I'm here, but I'm happy. Would somebody please explain this? <laughs> you know? That's going to be a little disorienting. Bless their hearts. They're got, they've got a lot to catch up on. Okay? But there will be people there like that. So... God doesn't have to take the gospel to all the world to give them a chance to be saved. Now, I think it improves their chances. Don't get me wrong. You know, some people, some people have said, well, yeah, you know, even the unevangelized, they have a chance to be saved, so why bother with evangelism? Well, that's kind of selfish, you know. I mean, it improves their chances to hear the gospel, especially if you're, you know, a loving and lovable Christian when you take it to them, okay. But that's not the reason as I understand it, at least, and you're welcome to disagree with me. Before we go further with the reason for the gospel going around the world, I want to ask another more basic question. What is this gospel? Revelation 14, 6 through 12. 
Okay. Good. Follow me. If the Pope could preach an evangelistic series that broadcast every person on the earth, would the end come? <laughs> okay. I'll take that as a no. <laughs> okay. What about Benny Hinn or Jerry Falwell or James Dobson or Joel Austin? I don't even know who some of these people are, to be honest. They're not my... I don't really follow them, but I, I found their name someplace. These are all apparently famous like TV evangelists or something, right? Could they preach a gospel that would bring on the end? Okay, now I'm going to get really... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping right out of line here. Yeah, no, my name does not really belong on the end of that list. But <laughs> okay. But here's my question. Are we ready? Do we have this gospel the way it needs to be to bring on the end? My point is that the gospel is not so much a matter of quantity. Oh, we've got to get the gospel to everybody as it is quality. You know, we need, uh, we need this gospel, which is complete, mature, powerful enough to bring on the end. Does that make sense? You following with me? Tracking with me? What I'm saying, and, and I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what necessarily constitutes this gospel. Just, you know, I'll be referring to it. What I mean when I say this gospel is that. <laughs> complete, mature, powerful. Do we have it? Do I have it? I, I'll just be honest and say, I don't, think I, I don't think I do. I don't think it's in my life. I don't think, it's, I don't think I'm an accurate representation of it yet. I, don't, I think there's, there's stuff for us to learn. At least there is for me. That's, that's my thinking. Okay? Well, What's holding things up? That's, that's our question. What's, what's holding things up? Scripture talks about it. After these things, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, were sealed. So what is holding things up? The ceiling. The ceiling. Everything is holding till the ceiling. Make sense? Until God's people are sealed, you're going to have an angel someplace saying, hold, 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 hold. That's the way Ellen White puts it in early writings. Now, we're not ready. Hmm. The ceiling, or the lack of the ceiling, is holding up God's plans. So here's my next question. And I know that I, I, these questions can be really obnoxious. I don't mean to be. But why do we need a ceiling? Is it important? Could God's plan go ahead without the ceiling? Is it like one of those little miscellaneous vacuum tubes under there? Or is it like the fuel injectors? Yeah. If we just took the whole concept of the ceiling and removed it from our eschatology, our last day events, 
would it work? And if it wouldn't work, what does the ceiling do? What makes it necessary? Okay. I'm going to suggest that the answer, and, and what I'm doing here is like I call it a utilitarian analysis. I mean, what's the utility? What's the purpose of this thing? Okay. So I'm going to suggest the answer is here. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay? God's church, it's people like you and me, God's church is intended to serve as a demonstration of God's wisdom to make known to the principalities and powers. You know, God's problem is a lot bigger than worrying about whether I end up in heaven. God's government for the whole universe is on the line. He's got folks up there that are wondering. And right now, probably, well, I won't jump ahead. We'll come to that. There are two big questions that any, anybody with any intelligence up there has to be asking. And God doesn't rebuke them for asking. Okay? So, what I'm saying, just so you can track with me, is that this demonstration, remember, demonstration here, demonstration here, demonstration here in the process, okay? The demonstration, the stage three demonstration of the 144,000 depends on the ceiling. And it depends on the ability of God's people to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. Okay. So... <laughs> I don't, I don't really like that question. It almost looks blasphemous to even ask questions like that. I mean, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm going to pretend to pronounce the, the wisdom of God. I'm really not, okay? But I think there are, there's just enough for human beings to follow. We're never going to, you know, we'll spend all eternity studying the wisdom of God. So, you know, I'm not pretending that we have it all here, but, you know. What is the manifold wisdom? The manifold wisdom of God is to be made known by the church. So what is this manifold wisdom? That's my, my question. And we're going to approach that. This gets a little cumbersome. Just kind of track with me. We're going to approach that by asking four questions about this, this thing. Okay? First question is, what plans are being held up? Okay? We said that, well, we talked about that. You know, things are being held up, waiting for this display and the ceiling, all that. What plans are being held up? What wisdom of God could possibly require demonstration? You know, he's, he's demonstrating for the benefit of the unfallen universe. These are the loyal guys up there. So really, what, what, what wisdom of God, you know, what are we trying to demonstrate? What needs to be demonstrated? What specifics need to be demonstrated? And can the ceiling demonstrate what is needed? Well... Yes, it can. <laughs> That's the good news, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to take these four questions and we're going to walk through them step by step, okay? So our first one is, what plans are being held up? The ceiling is holding up, you know, the angel, hold, hold, hold until we have sealed, right? The lack of the ceiling is holding up what? Time of Jacob's trouble. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, 
It, it holds up everything. Nothing moves from that point on. It's like some buses I've been on. You know? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not going anywhere. You know? Okay, this is not going to be an exhaustive list, but everything from the ceiling on, the close of probation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the second coming, the reward of the righteous, the destruction of the wicked, uh, all that is held up. And we're just kind of marching in place, waiting for the ceiling. Okay? Okay. So that's what's being held up. Now we move to our second question, which was, what wisdom of God could possibly require demonstration? Now, make this easier for you. If we go back here, take a look at the list there. Is there anything on that list that seems more than anything else that might require demonstration in some special sense to demonstrate the wisdom of it? Destruction of the wicked is is one I like. And reward of the righteous. Okay, let me paint my picture. Everything else is related, so if you were looking at something else, don't feel too bad. But what wisdom could possibly require demonstration... Those two in particular. Now, why... Just put yourself in Gabriel's place. Now, I just use Gabriel because he's the only angel I know the name of, okay? So, I was talking about Gabriel. I hope he doesn't mind. Um, but, you know, I try not to misrepresent him. You know, he's a real guy. You know, the day will come when we'll have a chance to talk to Gabriel. He's a real angel. I was going to say person, but he's, he's a real individual. You know? so I, but I use him as my archetypical angel because I don't know any other names. Gabriel is no dummy. He's a smart guy. And if Jesus walked up and said, Gabriel, there's a, there's a guy named Fiedler down there. I, I want to bring him up and move him into the mansion next to you. Is that Okay. <laughs> I don't know exactly how Gabriel would say it, but he'd, I'm sure he would say something along the lines of, Jesus, we better talk. <laughs> I, I've watched that guy. I, I know what he's like. And do you remember Lucifer? He was my best friend. And we kicked him out of heaven. And Fiedler has the same problem, Jesus. We don't want him here. Please, Jesus, don't do it again. So is there a reason to demonstrate that taking participatory sinners like you and me to heaven, and not just taking them to heaven, but putting them on the throne as I am sat down with my father on his throne? Question? So, I don't want to divert too much. Is that possible? That, that almost leads to the fact that the angels, have they been sealed as well? Because Lucifer had the potential to sin, and he was cast out. And for the fact that the angels, you know, so I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking. Mm-hmm. That, the angels have been sealed. It happened at the cross. Okay. They were made eternally secure at that point. But not quite so much with you and me yet. I mean, no offense, but, you know. I know me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and so that raises an interesting question. What is that ceiling? You know, they were made eternally secure at that point. How does that work? What's going on? It helps us. That's a, that's a, good, uh, a good point of analysis. Okay. Another little point for whatever it's worth. What's the verse? How many are immortal? God alone hath immortality. Now, I may be putting too much on, on just, you know, a, a little use of words here, so don't, don't you know, uh, probably a Greek scholar would be able to uh, tell me whether I'm barking up the wrong tree or not here. Nobody's immortal except for the Godhead, right? Is, was Lucifer immortal? No. Why do we know that? Because he's going to die. Immortality is not just that they never die, it's that they cannot die. Right? With me? So angels have what we would call conditional uh, eternal life. Conditional eternal life. As long as they obey, they will live forever. It's not exactly the same as immortality. Immortality is you cannot die. So now try this on for size. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. And this mortal must put on... Really? It's kind of risky. You think Gabriel's good with that? (laughs) You know? Gabriel is no idiot. He's thinking. So I'm going to say that the reward of the righteous is is a very much alive question with the angels, and the rest of the universe. Destruction of the wicked. What about this one? And and again, I'm putting words in Gabriel's mouth, but I think they're probably pretty close to true. Gabriel and Lucifer used to be best friends. If not absolute best friends, at least they certainly got along well, because everybody did in heaven (laughs) at one point. You know? God can do anything. But why is he saying he's going to save people like you and send Lucifer to to hell? Lucifer's my buddy. I still remember the good things. I remember singing in his choir. He used to lead the choir, you know? I've always, I'd love to see the the hymn book. Let's all turn to hymn numbers, 473,627,503, and we'll sing first and last. (laughs) (laughs) But that was real for them, and I I don't mean to make light of it. You know, I'm I'm not, I know I I joke kind of, but, you know, but that was real stuff for them. They loved Lucifer. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to burn him. Really? Isn't there something you can do? Those are big, big questions. Why in the world would he take sinners from earth and and say that the door is hopelessly closed on all the angels, the fallen angels? What's going on with that? Okay, so... The two big things, if we, uh, if we uh, were to break them down a little bit, is that, that God, the angels are watching. They do not want God to endanger heaven by bringing sin up into it. And they do not want to see their f- former friends needlessly executed. I think that's fair. 
I think I'd be afraid of angels that didn't have those concerns. Wouldn't you? I mean, oh, that's okay, Lucifer, yeah, we, we don't need him. Go ahead and fry him. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think they feel that way. Question. It's not a contrast, but it is a tension held in place by faith. The angels that are still in heaven, the one thing that they didn't do was by Lucifer's line that it was better for them to follow their own, own judgment. And so when Jesus says, we saved one, they're saying, praise the Lord, but they're saying, by faith. <laughs> okay? That's why demonstration is necessary eventually. Okay. So... Third question, what specifics need to be demonstrated? Okay, let me tell you a story here. Suppose I, I spent 20 years as a classroom teacher. So suppose you had a math teacher and he gives his whole class a test, say Algebra 1 or something like this. Okay, He gives his class a test and everybody flunks. Eh. Okay. But then, since I'm making up the story, the teacher stands up and he says, class... Everyone flunked. But the following list of seven individuals, reads off seven names, will be given A's. Would that raise questions in your mind? And so let's just say that you go to the teacher and say, you know, I don't, I don't get it. I thought everybody flunked. They did. But Marvin and Susan and uh, Fred, you know, they got A's. Why did they get an A when they flunked the test? And the teacher says, oh, that's simple. It's because they have blue eyes. You good with that? <laughs> Why not? What's wrong with using blue eyes as a criterion? It's not, Why is it not fair? I mean, the teacher's the teacher, right? The teacher can do what he wants. It's his class. The color of the uh, uh, iris, I was going to say eyeball, but the color of the iris has nothing to do with their ability in math. There's no linkage. You can't use a criterion that doesn't directly correspond to what you're rewarding. Right? Now, if you were in that class and you had blue eyes, would you think it was a good idea? You would be tempted, at least. You would be tempted, at least. Okay? Supposing you had brown eyes or green eyes. That's about it, I guess. Anyhow, <laughs> I don't know, hazel eyes or whatever. Okay, you know? It probably wouldn't sound so good to you. Okay? Now, here's just a quick thought, not really on my main point, but this is a profound thought that I learned from... Some place I read this. I don't even remember where now. Yeah, I do now. Now I just remember. Be home. The first step to unjust persecution is unearned reward. F- follow that. The first step to unjust persecution is unearned reward. Before Hitler could convince the Germans to kill the Jews, he had to tell them that they were the super race. Did they deserve that, that category? Not so much, no. 
But you have to give an unearned reward before you can set up enough contrast so you can bring in unjust persecution. So if you manage to convince all the guys with blue eyes that you know, they deserve that A, then they'll probably be standing in line to say, man, you've got, you got brown eyes. <laughs> Sorry, you flunk. Okay, so that's my, my story here. <clears throat> now, obviously I'm drawing a parallel to the plan of salvation. The whole class flunked, but some of them go to heaven. Why? What? Blue eyes? <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> you know? Why? And, and, and you know, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful of, you know, any differing points of view, you know, from the Adventist point of view, but, you know, I mean, there are people who say it's because, you know, at one point on one drunken night, this poor guy recited the sinner's prayer. That gets him into heaven. That's the difference right there. You know, I want Jesus as my Savior. He doesn't remember it the next morning, but that's good. He confessed with his mouth. He's going to heaven. Praise the Lord. I'm looking at that and saying, yeah, it looks a lot like blue eyes to me. <laughs> but what is it really then? What is it really? Hmm. Okay. Well, let's go back to our math test. Suppose... Well, let's just put it this way. Can you find any way in which after the class is flunked, is there any just, right, proper way that seven students could get A's? What would have to happen before seven students could get A's? What's that? Curve the grade. Curve the grade. Oh, man. Vicious curve you're talking. <laughs> We're not going to go there yet. Redo the test. Okay. Class, we did the you know, section 13. Everybody flunked. Obviously, somehow I messed up. I guess I didn't get you guys, you know, because if everybody flunks, it's going to be the teacher's fault. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> okay. We're going to take another week. We're going to go over this material. We're going to get this down. Okay, guys? So, uh, you know, I need you to pull your weight here, but I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can't help you with this. Okay, so this is an X and that's a Y. Here we go. Yeah, okay. um, so you, you take a week, you go over the section, and you give the test again. And seven of them, Score 100%. Is it justified to give them an A? I suppose you could average it. Well, you flunked a zero and you got 100, so you got 50%. Oh, you're still flunking. You know? <laughs> no, 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 they got that 100%. What they've done is they've, they've demonstrated their mastery of the, the unit, whatever it might be. You know, quadratic equations or hyperbolas or whatever it is. Okay, you've done all that stuff, right? But still using that illustration, suppose that I give this test the second time and I, my seven students, they do pass with 100%. Can I, on the basis of that test, say that they will never again miss a math problem? No, no, no. I really can't do that because there's always section 14, which is coming next week <laughs> to a textbook near you. Um, how is God ever going to convince Gabriel that somebody like you or me is safe. Oh, they got 100% on that test. That's good, Jesus. We're happy. But what about the next one? He took Enoch. He did. So they would have to believe it by faith. 
Yeah, he's going he's 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 working to he's working to put this thing on an eternal basis of security. It says. <laughs> I think we're gonna have to move beyond the faith. And I'm gonna just stick my neck out here for whatever it's worth. I think Enoch and Moses and Elijah are there on probation. That's my personal opinion. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, when those guys came back to talk to Jesus, this was no idle discussion. This was, you know, Jesus, we're praying for you. We're not trying to be selfish, but what happens to us depends on what you do next. That's just the way I view it. So, you know, whatever. I, don't, I can't give you a thus saith the Lord on that one. Okay, so um, the point is that passing that test with 100% does not guarantee them for all eternity. And here's the other question. What about the guys who flunked the second test? What if we gave them another week? Try it the third time. Try it the fourth time. Five, six, seven, eight. At what point do you say, this kid is never going to learn algebra. He's hopeless. Give him an F and let's move on. You know, pass him up to the next grade. <laughs> I've been a teacher too long. Anyhow, okay. Um, I'm not a teacher anymore. I think they got rid of me. But anyhow, <laughs> okay. So do you see that we have two problems still? How do you guarantee anyone for eternity, and how do you completely rule anyone out? I guess we're, talking, we're not talking about getting an F on your report card. We're talking about burning in the fires of hell and eternal destruction. At what point do you say, I'm sorry, I cannot do anything for this person? And this is God, who is love. <clears throat> Well, here's my, my concepts. Take them and leave them. To justify his government's rulings on the reward of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked, God needs to do three things. He has to show that there is a good reason some are lost and some are saved. He can't, he can't pull off with the blue eyes thing. There has to be a very, very, very compelling line of distinction between those who are lost and those who are saved. He has to show that the people he wants to take to heaven are safe to have there. He has to show there is nothing more that even God could do to help the wicked. How's he going to do that? Can the ceiling demonstrate what is needed? Yes. So cool. It can. <laughs> I love this. Okay. So we're going to start off with some uh, basic information here. You know all this, right? The seal of God, Revelation 7 and 9, is contrasted with the mark of the beast. Found in Revelation 13, the seal, official sign of authority, gives the essential information, usually the name, title, jurisdiction of the individual organization or government it represents, right? You're familiar with that. This information is found in the Sabbath commandment. The name, the Lord, the title, creator, the jurisdiction, heaven and earth. Okay, so the seal of God, the, the, the Sabbath is the, the sealing commandment, right? You've heard that. Okay, the mark of the beast is readily identified as the claim to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and then accepting that claim and knowingly worshiping on Sunday, you know. Okay, so you're familiar with the mark of the beast and all that sort of stuff. Okay, here's a basic chart. This is not, you know, this is not, it's not to scale. <laughs> Don't get out your little ruler, you know, I'm not predicting any dates here, okay. <laughs> um, 
This is, uh, and there's a bunch of stuff that's not even on here, but it has some basic things. And what we want to notice is that the seal of God is placed in the foreheads of the 144,000 before the close of probation. Here. Now, how long is that? You know, I don't know. know, A day, two hours, 30 seconds. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. But the sealing occurs before the close of probation. And definitely before the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay? Well, the close of probation, we know, marks the end of Christ's work as high priest, the most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary. Okay, that's all straightforward. I used to think of the seal of God as like the good housekeeping seal of approval type of thing, you know, coming from a teaching background. I used to think of it as kind of like a diploma. Maybe the you know, gold cords or something. You know, a little tassel flipped from one side to the other. Yeah, you know, all that stuff. Okay. I used to think that the seal of God was what God put on those who had achieved. But you know what? I never handed out diplomas before final tests. And the test comes here. So what's the seal? Conflict between the observance of Sabbath and the mark of the beast reaches its peak during the time of Jacob's trouble when those resisting the combined religious political authority of the world are condemned to death. Okay, well, you, know, you knew that already. We're going we're to come back to that. I'm not dodging any questions here. We'll come back and pick up every little stitch along the way, but we're going to have to cover some more basic stuff as we go along. First of all, we ask, how did Jacob get into the time of Jacob's trouble? Okay, comes from Jeremiah, actually. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is even in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Okay? You remember the story. Jacob is uh, returning home after 20 years away, right? And he gets word that his brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 armed men. (laughs) That's not a good thing. He realizes his only hope is in God, and he spends the night praying. At midnight, Ellen White tells us, a hand is laid on his shoulder. Now, is it laid on his shoulder like that or like that? I don't know. Okay. What I do know is that at midnight, Jacob started wrestling with this presumed antagonist. You know, I went to public school when I was in seventh grade, and we had wrestling in PE, and we had three-minute wrestling rounds. They wrestled from midnight till dawn. It's a minimum of five hours over there in that part of the world. Think you could do that? I don't think I could do that. <laughs> That's a long time to rest. And this is not International Olympic Committee nice guy rules. Okay? This is the kind of wrestling that goes on when you think, you know, if I lose this, I'm going to be dead. And so for five hours, Jacob is fighting this opponent. 
All the while praying, saying, God, forgive me. I know that whole birthright thing was stupid. I shouldn't. Oh, God, forgive me, please. I need help, God. The devil, the whole time, is saying, you're guilty, man. You are like so guilty. What's the point in praying? You are toast. And he hangs on by faith, and he fights for five hours. And then the angel says, oh, excuse me, And he zaps his Achilles tendon in a way which was obviously supernatural. And now Jacob is in a serious, serious case of cognitive dissonance. (laughs) Because all of a sudden he realizes that the one he has been wrestling for the last five hours is the same one he has been praying to. That's awkward. This is the guy whose nose I have repeatedly flattened with my forehead. This is the guy whose kidneys I tried to remove with my elbow. I wasn't playing by nice rules. And I've been praying to him, and what are the odds that he's going to answer my prayer now? Jacob had two diametrically opposed directions he could go. He could either say, oh, look what I've done to this guy. I am dead meat. Or he could say, he didn't kill me. He could have killed me at any point. He must really love me. Uh, Despite the whole thing with the hip. (laughs) Okay. You know, really. What's he going to do when he realizes the one he's been praying to is the one he's been fighting against and has been fighting against him? Okay. We already covered that more or less. That's the way the story is told in Genesis. Okay. This is the test of the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble that we had on our little chart here a while ago is a categorically different kind of a test. It's not the test that the guys had when they were burning at the stake. That was different. This is, this is different. The time of Jacob's trouble has to be the hardest of all possible tests of everything that's important to decide whether or not these guys are safe in heaven. It has to be the hardest test, because if there's ever any possibility of a harder one coming along, how are you going to guarantee that they're not going to flunk on that test? So what makes it so uniquely hard? This is, this is foreshadowed in numerous stories. We'll only give you two here. Remember Job? Anybody think of a line from Job that might sound like this? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Really? Really, really? Yeah. Jesus, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says, you know, Zyravagia says that when the cloud closed in on the cross, lightning bolts appeared to be directed against him. And that's all he felt. That's all he saw, heard, smelled. What other senses am I missing? Every sensory input told him God hated him. Nevertheless, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Because I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it sounds like. I don't care what it smells like. I don't even care about the taste of blood in my mouth. I know that God loves me. 
I know that's my only place of safety. In thy hands I commit my spirit. One more example, similar, not as strong, of course, was the Syrophoenician woman. I am not come but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not right to give food to the little dogs. Truth, Lord, she says, but even the dogs get the crumbs. <laughs> you know, even the dogs get the crumbs. You know, even when, when, when he appeared to be against her, somehow she knew that there was love behind all that. Okay. Well, <clears throat> moving on. What makes this test special? Millions have faced the test of death. What's the difference here? This is not the normal test of martyrdom because at this time, with no high priest interceding in the heavenly sanctuary, the 144,000 feel no sense of God's abiding presence. Somebody asked me yesterday, will they do this without the help of the Holy Spirit? No, of course not. The Holy Spirit has to be helping them. Okay? But do they feel it? (laughs) Do they feel... you remember the stories? You ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Remember that guy that, you know, they, they made the signal, you know, if, 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 if the Lord gives you grace to handle the flames, put your hands up and clap. You remember that story? Yeah, he did it, you know. They knew. God's spirit was there, you know, testifying to their spirit. Not in the time of trouble. Every sensory input tells them that God is their enemy, that he wants to kill them. You know, there's an extremely important statement. This next statement is is really the one that sent me down this whole track more than any other. And she only says it once in all the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy. It's the only place she says this, this clearly. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them, for it appears to them as to Jacob in his distress that God himself has become an avenging enemy. That's what they see. God, I was, I was happy in the Baptist church, and then I heard that prophecy seminar, and I became an Adventist because I'm standing up for the truth, God. And I lost my job. My wife and my family turned against me and eventually I lost my home and now I've fled from the cities. I'm out here in the wilderness someplace. I've got these guys with AK-47s and M16s all standing around just waiting for the clock to hit midnight to kill me. But God, I'm standing up for your truth! And right then, God comes up and stabs you in the back. Now do you trust him? It has to be the hardest test. There is no test of faith harder than obvious breach of faith. I'm working for you, God. Yeah, well, sorry. You know? When the guy turns against you, when you're loyal to him, that's the hardest test of faith. And they pass it. Now, Here's what's cool about this. Oh, uh, before we go on to what's cool. <laughs> this is cool, too. <laughs> I love this stuff. I'm having fun. Okay. Danger's thicken on every side, and it's difficult to fix the eye of faith. This is still continuing on from that same reference. Da- uh, uh, difficult to fix the eye of faith upon the promises amidst the certain evidences of immediate destruction. But in the midst of revelry and violence, there falls upon the ear, peal upon peal of the loudest thunder. The heavens have gathered blackness and are only illuminated with the blazing light and terrible glory from heaven. God utters his voice from his holy habitation. The captivity of his people is turned. 
with sweet and subdued voices, they say to one another, God is our friend. (laughs) It didn't look like it a few minutes ago. (laughs) God is our friend. That's all you got to know. You know that, you're good. You don't know that, you need to learn it. (laughs) God is our friend. Okay. Well, back to the test. Here's what the test of the 144,000 shows. By placing his seal on the 144,000 before this most difficult of all tests, God provides convincing evidence that he can correctly identify those who are safe to let into heaven. This is not a diploma. It's a demonstration for the benefit of the principalities and powers to be made known by the church. God says, okay, people, watch. Or, okay, angels, watch. <laughs> you know, this one and this one and this one and those two there and these three and this one and this one and this. I'm going to tag 144,000 of these guys. They don't even know that they've been tagged. And now we're going to withdraw the Holy Spirit and let all perdition break loose. But watch those guys. They're going to show you something. And they show several things. Number one, they show that number... The first thing they show is that true faith, that's what God's tagging. That's what the, that's what the, 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 the seal of God is. It's, it's, it's the seal of faith. Okay? And so God looks and he says, who has faith? You know, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Sometimes it seems dubious, okay? But that's what he he looks over the over the world and he says, "These people have faith." I tag them. The other thing is, how many people understand the true gospel at that point? Everyone. Now, that's important. Do you remember your scientific theory? How you set up an experiment? How many variables do you want on the front end of an experiment? One. <laughs> One. Okay. You want, ideally, you get it down to only a single, what we call, an independent variable. There we go. Okay. We get it down to a single variable on this end. We run the experiment, and then we look at the results. And the dependent variable... Right? Remember, dependent depends on the independent one, right? Okay? So, let's put it this way. Suppose I've got, I'm running an experiment, and I have balloons, and I have two canisters of compressed gas. Okay? One canister is regular air mix, the other canister is helium. Okay? So, the independent variable is, what do we fill this balloon with? The dependent variable is, where does the balloon go when I let go of it? Right? So I fill it up with air, drops. Fill it up with air, drops, drops. Okay, helium, goes up, goes up. Okay, so when I, what I'm demonstrating is that one thing always produces one result, and the other thing always produces the other result, right? You with me on that? Now you can confuse that. That's why you got to get rid of the variables. Suppose I have really, really heavy, thick rubber balloons. Fill it with helium. What's going to happen? It may fall anyhow. 
Suppose I fill a light balloon with hot air instead of cold air. It may rise even though it's not helium. Yeah. Okay. Too many variables. <laughs> okay. We don't want different kinds of balloons. We don't want different temperatures of air. We want this down to a single variable. Is it air or is it helium? Okay. By taking the gospel to all the world, the knowledge of the gospel is no longer a variable. Tracking with me? We're down to a single variable now. The only thing this hinges on is, does that person have faith? True faith, united with the understanding of this gospel, whatever that may in final analysis entail, always produces victory over sin. You with me on that? That's a cool thing to demonstrate. <laughs> and in the process, God has demonstrated not only the, the results of the experiment, that, that, that knowledge of the gospel plus faith always produces victory, he's also demonstrated his ability to identify faith. Because every single one that he sealed passes the test. And the, and the, and the ones that he didn't seal, they, aren't even in the, they, they didn't even show up at the test center. <laughs> you know, they're not doing multiple choice. They didn't even get the paper. Okay, <laughs> There's a strong, clear, obvious distinction between the people who pass this test and the people who fail. And when Jesus shows that true faith united with an understanding of this gospel always produces, um, always produces victory, that puts him in a position to do something else really cool. Okay, Because everyone on earth at this time is familiar with this gospel, and only those who have faith pass the test, and all those who have faith pass the test, this test shows that faith is necessary for salvation, and faith plus the knowledge of the gospel is sufficient for complete obedience. Okay, it's a little formal logic stuff, the necessary and sufficient. Don't worry about it if you're not familiar with those terms in that sense. They pretty much mean what they sound like. Okay. <laughs> this is why the gospel has to go to the whole world. So this, this demonstration could be made. You tracking? Does that, does that make sense? I like it. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> the test cannot be carried out properly without simplifying the equation or the situation down to a single variable. Only when the question of knowledge is standardized can the role of faith be clearly seen. It's a bit like working on a car. You don't do a major engine haul, overhaul and switch gasoline brands at the same time because you won't know what the improvement came from. You, know? you spent $500 on the overhaul and you uh, paid $0.30 cents extra on the gas and now you're getting you know, a little better gas mileage. So was it the $500 or the $0.30 cents extra? You, know? you don't know if you'd change too many things at once. Question. Given the gospel going out to the whole world is basically like given out of a test, in a sense. You can't take the test without receiving the paper. In a sense. You could, you could, you could liken it to that. Okay. I might illustrate a little bit differently, but you're close enough. Okay. That's, yeah, you're in, the, you're in the good ballpark. Okay. So once this stuff has been shown, now God can do something really cool. He can say, Gabriel... Do you remember Martin Luther? You know, Martin Luther is one of my heroes. But I have some issues with Martin. He didn't keep the Sabbath. 
In fact, he ran Karlstadt out of tan, town. Karlstadt was advocating a Seventh-day Sabbath, and Luther kicked him out of town. Luther was all goofed up on infant baptism. He was not much of a health reformer. I mean, he was a German, right? He lived on roast beast, sauerkraut, and beer. Living on a diet like that, he was not a patient individual. Read some of his little uh, table-side chats type of thing. You know? He had a pretty coarse sense of humor. And to add insult to injury, he advocated the, uh, the extinction of all my paternal ancestors. Um, he said, kill them all. That's not nice. <laughs> okay? But... A little number called the investigative judgment determined that Martin Luther had faith. And we can teach him this gospel when we get him up here. Does anybody mind if I bring Martin Luther to heaven? And the whole universe will say, we're good. We're good. On the basis of what the 144,000 just demonstrated. We're good. We're good. We know that you know faith, and if you say Martin had faith, we know the power of faith plus this gospel. Martin's good. Bring him on. That's what covers the righteous dead. We talked about that yesterday. Or we alluded to that. Okay. Now Jesus says, I can teach Martin Luther the details of this gospel when I get to heaven. But the investigative judgment has already found that he had true faith. Is it okay with everyone? And everyone will say yes, because righteousness really is by faith. And by faith alone, as Martin Luther once said. is that not cool? I like that. That just made so much sense to me when I finally stumbled onto that after beating my head against this wall for a long while. Anyhow, okay. Fast forward a thousand years. After a thorough examination of the books of record to answer every question about why this one or that one is not among the redeemed, the time has come to finish sin and sinners forever. I'm going to have to go through this quickly. At the uh, Okay, so this is after the millennium. Uh, Jesus descends on the Mount of Olives, the earth splits, great plain, right? New Jerusalem comes to rest. The wicked are raised to life. Actually, the, uh, the wicked are, I got that backwards in my notes here, I'm sorry about that. The wicked are raised to life before the New Jerusalem comes down, okay? And Jesus and the saints are outside the New Jerusalem, okay? The, the, the city comes down, the wicked are out there someplace. Jesus and the saints are, are outside, and then Jesus leads the saints through the gates into the city of, uh, into the New Jerusalem, Okay? There is a period of time given. I don't know how long this will be. I've heard speculation, but I don't, whatever. There's a period of time given to the wicked to get themselves organized and figure out what they're going to do. Okay? And they prepare their weapons and get ready to attack the city. I, I mean, this has got to be, I, I know, I have a warped sense of, of curiosity, but it's like, you know, Genghis Khan. Oh, give me a big sword. I take them all on. You know, and uh, Joseph Stalin saying, I was thinking of SS-20s. <laughs> you know? You know? Oh, I don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to get themselves organized because at last the order to advance is given and the countless host moves on. An army such as was never summoned by earthly conquerors, such as the combined forces of all ages since war began on earth could never equal. Satan, the mightiest of warriors, leads the van and his angels unite their forces for this final struggle. Kings and warriors are in his train and the multitudes follow in vast companies, each under its appointed leader. With military precision, the serried ranks advance over the earth's broken surface broken and uneven surface to the city of God. By command of Jesus, the gates of the New Jerusalem are closed, and the armies of Satan surround the city and make ready for the onset. Stop. Something really amazing just happened. Do you know what it is? 
It's not the army. Armies do what armies do. The gates have been open because only now when they get ready to attack are they closed. This is one of my weaker points. I can't give you a real thus saith the Lord for this, so you know, evaluate this for yourself. I suspect that this is where the demonstration is made that the wicked cannot be helped. Is there a big PA system up there saying, please, come into the gates? I don't know. It wouldn't make any difference if there was or not. They wouldn't come in because they don't trust him. Don't go in there, Margaret. They're going to they're gonna waterboard you if you go in there. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, they do not trust him. There's nothing even God himself can do. So here's my question. Would this same Jesus... The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who said, whoever comes to me I will by no means cast out. The one who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Would that Jesus let a repentant and trusting sinner into the city? I think he would. But there aren't any there. Because they don't trust him. Righteousness is by faith. It does make sense. God has a plan. It's moving forward. We're stalled at step three because it depends, unfortunately, on people like you and me. That's what we'll be looking at by means of Adventist history for the next four sessions. Question. But could you clarify that point because you almost could seem like you're saying there is probation after that. So can you just clarify? My, my clarification is simply this. I wouldn't want to call it probation because it would leave the wrong idea. What I call it is there is demonstration. That even though the doors are open, they're not going to go anywhere near it. You know? This is dependent on God's foreknowledge just as much as tagging the 144,000 is dependent on his foreknowledge. Um, do I want to hold out the hope that somebody could go walking into the city at that point? No, that would be stupid because some poor dummy would say, oh, wait till then. <laughs> it's not going to work that way. Uh, you know. So, no, I, I, I'm, I, I hope that that's clear. I know it's a little fuzzy because I, I'm always fuzzy when I try to explain divine foreknowledge and freedom of the will. Those two things kind of conflict in my ability to humanly explain. Question, ma'am. Um, I don't know if there's a term. It would be interesting to look. I'm using the term sealed perhaps a little loosely. I know that Ellen White says that at the cross, the rest of the universe was made eternally secure. Up till that point, they were not. Okay? And so that's what I'm calling sealing. And maybe I should use a different term for that. I, I, I would. It probably is a way of creating confusion to use that term. So I'll, just, I'll backtrack on that one. Good, good call. Um, but it was the demonstration made at the cross that, that locked the rest of the universe in, and they said, whoa, Satan just killed an innocent. He killed the Son of God. I know what he would do to me if I ended up on his bad side. I don't want to be any part of his government. And so that clarification was made at the cross. Okay, let's, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit long here. Let's break. Father, pray that you would help us to work these things through. Help us to find... 
anything that will actually be useful in helping us to be more intelligently cooperative with you. I pray in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.